0: Hello, you beautiful people. Welcome back. Today's episode is brought to you by Uncommon Coffee, the best selection of coffee in the UK, and you can get 20% off. Uncommon Coffee are an on-demand premium coffee service whose priority is on making their customers as happy as possible, accompanied with the cheapest prices around when it comes to literally the best tasting and most popular coffee from the number one independent coffee houses and roasters in the UK. If you or someone in your household is a coffee lover, then you have to go and check these guys out. I continue to receive packages that are wiring me through the roof on a morning, but Ozone. I've absolutely fallen in love with that. We had something else that was notes of plum in it the other day. So good, wonderful selection. And if you don't really know where to start, they'll give you their recommendations on how you should pour and grind the coffee, what the notes are, and they'll even help you choose if you're just giving them an email and say, "These are the sort of tastes I like. How can you help me?" You don't need to wait for the coffee that you love. You get. One payment, one cheap delivery cost, one delivery date and time, and one perfectly packaged coffee delivery direct to your door. And on top of that, you can get 20% off with the code MW20 at uncommoncoffee.co.uk. That's 20% off caffeine at uncommoncoffee.co.uk. Go and check it out and upgrade your coffee game today. On to today's guest, I am joined by Richard Meadows, who is a journalist and an author, Optionality is a term from finance and with his background in the investing world, Richard used the principles of optionality to create an entire life design philosophy that allows him to constantly be making his own look. Life doesn't come with an instruction manual and how to organize our lives to be efficient but have options and to take advantage of routine but enjoy variety is one of the hardest balancing acts that we face. So today, expect to learn why you should earn as much money as you can when you're young, how to make life-changing choices under uncertain conditions, how to protect against financial disaster, how to develop a system to create your own luck, and much more. This was such a, a surprise gem. I was intro to Richard from Julian, who's a listener of the show, and uh, he just blew me away. We're proper kindred spirits, and yet another bromance under the wing. Um, but he's super cool. Uh, there's so much to take away from today. Uh, and if you enjoy it, or if there's something that really resonates with you, then let me know at Chris Will X, wherever you follow me—Instagram, Twitter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Oh, that's it. Let's listen to Richard Meadows talk about how to make our own look. Richard Meadows, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Pleasure to have you on, man. So optionality, what is optionality?
1: Uh, The simplest definition of optionality is the right but not the obligation to take action. So you can do something if you want, but you don't have to. And my argument is that optionality is a pretty good uh, proxy for human flourishing in general. Um, And just being able to maximize your capabilities as a human being. And uh have have the, the maximum range of possibilities open to you
0: so would that suggest that naturally as humans, our level of well-being and flourishing is directly proportional to how many different options we can take in life?
1: Uh, I think it's it's less it's less of a quantitative thing and more qualitative, so it's about uh, the caliber of the options that are available to you. so I'd draw a distinction between having a a lot of choices in the consumer capitalism uh, frame where you can go to the supermarket and choose between uh, umpteen different varieties of uh, pasta sauce or laundry detergent but like having high quality options uh, is more important so being able to uh, you know work in a career that you that you find meaningful or satisfying or being able to have good relationships with the people around you um, that's That's really the key. And it's not so much about being sort of floating on cloud nine and being euphoric all of the time, but also having the right to to choose to do things that are really hard or that involve some degree of uh, not necessarily suffering, but perhaps some degree of hardship or sacrifice. Um, It's sort of a, a, a broader definition of human flourishing that goes beyond the simple hedonistic pleasures
0: How do you see optionality manifesting in the real world then? That's a nice concept, but what what does it actually look like when it enters our lives?
1: Yeah, so I've got a framework for cultivating optionality that basically looks like taking this lens and applying it to all the little decisions of daily life. Uh, So I'll give you a couple of concrete examples. Um, So what we're really looking for uh, overall is any sort of decision or action you can take that has a a small cost or a small downside. It doesn't require a lot of money or effort to take out the option, but it leads to an open ended upside. So it could, uh, it could have basically unlimited possibility and it could be really transformative for your life. Um, so one simple example of that would be, uh, you know, like uh, emailing someone you admire that takes you, Two minutes, or, uh, or or whatever it might be, to pin an email to someone, and amazingly, with the you know with the, the power of the internet, you can get in touch with just about anyone that you can imagine, and then they might even write you back, and it could be the beginning of a mentorship, or you could have some kind of relationship, or just uh, find it to be a, a meaningful interaction. So the pos- uh, the the downside cost there is um, you know very small; it's not that hard to do, and. The possible, the, the possible uh, positive outcome is very large or open-ended, so in most cases nothing will happen. Maybe they don't email you back, and that's fine because you've, you've lost essentially and not, nothing. Um, but in the event that they do, uh, there's a sort of a the, the potential for transformative upside. So my idea is to take this framework of optionality, which is a concept from the world of finance, and and just look at, the deci- look at a lot of decisions uh, through this framework and look for those asymmetries. So uh, what's the downside? What's the upside? And uh, what can I do that has a pretty small effort and might lead to a, a large payoff? And then just systematically collect as many of those options uh, as you can and build a sort of portfolio. So even if most of them don't work out, uh, you're sort of constantly uh, attuning yourself to serendipity and and luck it's sort of a a system for making your own luck Um, so yeah I could give more examples of of those sort of asymmetries if if you like Um, there's also uh, the negative optionality which is something like being in debt so if you take on a consumer debt you have the obligation to do something but not the right so it's an an inversion of the original formula Um, and again one of the most powerful things I would argue that anyone can do is to uh, remove those sources of negative optionality in your life so be extremely cautious of situations where um, the upside the possible return the reward the bounty is limited so it's fixed it's capped but the potential downside is uh, is bottomless or infinite so th- this is the sort of the russian roulette archetype where you spin the barrel maybe you win 100 bucks or sort of impress your mates at bar but in the event that you lose, you lose everything, uh, lights out. So that's the framework. Um, hunt for the asymmetric opportunities, uh, which are loaded in your favor, and steer well clear of the, uh, the, the options and decisions which have a negative asymmetry, um, where there's a possibility that it will lead to some kind of total ruin.
0: What are some of the other common situations that you see people getting negative optionality wrong, or that negative asymmetry?
1: Yeah, so in the financial realm, which is my sort of main area of expertise, um, one of them would be something quite boring, like uh, let's say you've got a car and I know uh, in the UK, but you drive around without insurance. Um, now, your, the potential upside from not bothering to take out insurance, I mean like indemnity or liability insurance, is you're saving X hundred dollars or pounds on the insurance premium, Right. Now, the potential downside is that you T-bone someone's Jaguar at the intersection uh, and you're on the hook for, um, you know, whatever it might be, several 100,000 pounds or you're, you're sort of out of commission altogether. Um, so I think insurance is like almost an inversion of the concept of optionality because it protects you against those large downside risks. Uh, another good example might be uh, during the, you know, the COVID Uh, 19 situation or disaster preparedness more generally whereby uh it's helpful to have a bunch of medicines that you need stockpiled and some basic food and and water and supplies in the event that something unexpected happens um it costs you very little to take those precautions i mean you're gonna you're gonna eat the food either way It's, it's sort of bugger all in the scheme of things uh, and in the event that you need it, you're really, really, really going to need it. So, failing to take uh, simple protective measures like that, I would also argue is sort of a um, a failure of imagination and a, and a kind of a common uh, risk management mistake where people are just like not necessarily thinking about it through this lens of like there are these big risks out here. Do I have an opportunity to mitigate them by taking some relatively cheap, straightforward actions?
0: The number one rule of the game is to never be out of being able to play.
1: Exactly right. Yep, yep. you can take risks. You can lose. It's fine. It's, it's, it's necessary to lose. But you can never lose so bad that you can't come back.
0: Did you see Bill Ackman's trade at the start of this year?
1: I don't think so. Tell me about it.
0: So it's being dubbed the new big short? So obviously the big short was that famous film uh, made about the fellow Christian Bale played that shorted the housing market. And Bill Ackman, who I'm sure that you know, a very famous short seller on Wall Street, he was the guy that was adamant that Herbalife was a scam. And I think he's still short on Herbalife, even though he hasn't taken them down yet. The beginning of this year, he foresaw that covid was going to have a significantly bigger impact on the entire world financial market than anybody had priced in so he took out a very special type of insurance um which is kind of like put options it's it's a bit sort of complex to explain and i i definitely can't do it but there's some youtube videos out there if anyone wants to dig into it further but the the long and short of it is he made more money than the man from the big short and the difference is it didn't take him three and a half years. It took him about four weeks. Billions right, and billions yeah. and billions of dollars in the space of about yeah. four weeks because this man foresaw that. And that's kind of the same, right? Like the potential risk that he had was to just continue taking over with this particular type of insurance. But the upside was so asymmetric in his favor that it made total sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So um, the guy who uh, who I've learned the most about optionality from is called uh, Nassim Taleb, and he's an options trader. And he did something very similar during the 2008-2009 uh, global financial crisis, whereby I, I think he was buying um, put options, and I think he was buying out-of-money puts, and he was sort of everyday loading up and and taking these small manageable losses and he could see something bad was going to happen with the build up of uh, accumulation of risk within the financial system and so when it all went to pieces uh, you know everyone lost their shirt except for him because he'd been waiting for just such an opportunity uh, with these small steady predictable kind of losses and then the upside when it came yeah is the same kind of scenario where it's essentially uh, it could it could run on forever, and so my understanding is that he he made his fortune um, by being a bit of a contrarian and uh, positioning himself to to profit from misfortune and disaster. Um, so yeah, kudos to uh, kudos to Bill Ackman too. I have to have a look at that.
0: Yeah, he crushed it, man. You're going to love that story. Another good example of negative asymmetry would be having unprotected sex or texting whilst driving. you're talking about a a marginal increase in pleasure for a potential 18-year commitment or a health health risk. Um, And then the equivalent for texting whilst driving. Like, you know, you're you're looking at potentially time in jail, a fine at the bottom end or ending some poor person's life because you're not properly looking or for what for replying to a meme a little bit quicker in a group chat that everyone's going to forget about within the next five seconds
1: yeah that's quite i love that i wish i'd included the um, unprotected sex one in the book that's fantastic yeah
0: it's it's a um, it's a conversation that we've had a number of times looking for these sort of asymmetric opportunities and avoiding these asymmetric risks do you see um any asymmetries manifesting more in the Hmm. sort of social realm rather than just in the financial realm did you come across any of those
1: yeah i have um i think most of them are positive asymmetries that you can exploit but i'd rather uh, uh sorry i'll touch on the on the negative ones to begin with so i think um the main negative one would be just this this social contagion effect whereby the people you surround yourself by uh are responsible they kind of shape you and mold you and they shape they shape your outcomes in a really surprising way just because humans are so malleable and so um we're so good at kind of unconsciously imitating one another so something that i say which might come across as quite mercenary and cruel in the book but i think is a actually a necessary thing to do is to um excise the the really toxic people from your life if you're unlucky enough to have them in your life, and pe- perhaps having taken steps to try and actually help them and do something about it. But um, yeah, there's, there's this phenomenon whereby things don't get worse in a linear fashion; they tend to uh, spiral downwards faster and faster. So if you have if your social group, if your friends or your family or whoever it might be, uh, uh, constantly exerting a negative influence over you, the hard and possibly probably correct thing to do is to get some distance from them um, possibly, you know, you may or may not cut them out of your life altogether, but definitely sort of, um, acknowledge this idea that, uh, you know, you can, uh, you don't, you don't have to, you don't have to feel obligated to, to be tethered to someone just because you have a shared history indefinitely. And I I certainly found that quite powerful, um, idea myself having been brought up with the notion that, uh, you know, it's like, it's very, you you have to love unconditionally from now until the end of time for your friends or family. Um, And there's no, uh, there's no way to get any distance from that. Um, Yeah. And then the, the more positive happy side of the equation is just, uh, it's a big old world and it's never been easier to connect with people. And incredible, and and it's incredibly easy to get in touch with people. I mean, I kind of, I know this, uh, I'm, so I'm a journalist by trade and, um, it's surprisingly easy to find people's contact details online. Um, so it's, it's mostly a question of, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, motivation or confidence or something like that, where you can put yourself out there um, and, and sort of find your tribe of people more easily than at any other point in history. And the manner in which you do so uh, usually involves something like being good at email or having a presence on Twitter or on, uh, you know, contributing to open source libraries if you're a programmer or inhabiting certain forums Um, uh, or putting yourself, the the next level version of that would be changing your geographic proximity. So actually upping and moving to uh, San Francisco if you're big into tech or New York if you're big into finance or or whatever it might be um, and putting yourself in the proximity of the kind of people who you are Likely to get along with, so that's like not as an attractive an option In so far as it requires you to live in san francisco, but um, uh, Yeah, there's there's lots of things that you can do to sort of build social capital uh, That don't require a lot of effort and that could potentially change your life and i'm, I'm sort of speaking from experience here um, Having having done that almost by accident and I think that people have this idea that you Can't really be strategic about things like relationships like it's somehow it's uh, it's gauche or, uh, it's not, it's not the done thing. Um, so I think if you apply this framework where you actually say, Hey, this is important to me, I'm going to put an effort in a strategic cultivated, deliberate way. Uh, that's really powerful. Just having that real having that realization and thinking more carefully about where you are uh, devoting your, your time and your energy.
0: Do you have any triggers that help you to continue doing that in life? One of the things that I often find is I'll come across a concept like this that we're discussing here or pretty much anything else to do with personal growth. And the issue, for the most part, isn't my buy-in. I fully believe that this could have a really positive impact in my life, but I need to instantiate it somehow. I need to have a trigger or some sort of little mantra or a reminder of some kind that allows me to actually enforce it into reality.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean... I like the idea of, of, of uh, chunking down difficult concepts into little mantras that you can remind yourself of. I definitely have a few of those myself. Um, actually, I have like a almost like a catch mantra. I'm not sure if I should even say it out loud, but I, I will. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a line. <laughs> I hope it doesn't lose its magic juju. It won't. Um, so there's a line that, that goes, at first say to yourself what you would be and then do what you have to do, uh, which is from... Epic so I think you're you're sort of big into the the Stoics, mm-hmm, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Um, so you'd probably be familiar with him. But yeah, it's just this idea of um, there ain't nothing to it but to do it. So um, I, I have little tricks like that. But my my main uh, my main weapon for making all these trade offs in a smoother fashion, uh, you know, making these short term pain, long term gain type uh, trade offs is uh, basically to systematize everything um, and what I mean by that is uh, put in place uh, certain practices and habits and constraints that um, just make the process of getting to where I want to be uh, smooth so it doesn't require willpower on a daily basis uh, and in the realm of finance an example of that would be uh, instead of sort of saying to myself I'd like to save X amount of money and I'll, and I'll try really hard not to not to blow my pay packet um just to set up an automatic transfer after payday that goes straight out of the bank account um straight into your investment account and then you have to live on whatever's left over and at no point in the process do you feel friction or pain it's, it's perfectly automated um and you, ju- you just get by and you sort of adapt to the to the new normal um of however much you've you've left yourself for spending money uh, and there's a, there's a bunch of tricks like that um which I find really useful um, for both and both, both practically in terms of actually implementing these, these, what I think of as trades um, and psychologically in terms of knowing that uh, no matter what your outcome is, you're putting in the work. So you're following your system day after day and you're doing the right things and, Maybe it will. Maybe it won't pay off um, immediately. You don't know exactly when it will pay off, and you don't know uh, what form. What will the payoff look like? But you can feel good about the fact that you're following your your system, and you're and you're stacking up uh, what I what I think of as these juicy asymmetric options. So um, I, I should probably give a concrete example of that as well, which would be something like reading books. I think is just like changed my life probably like no other practice has and the reason that i like to read books i mean quite apart from the enjoyment factor is that uh they're cheap you, you can buy them cheap or you can get them from the library for free and then you don't know what's in there you don't know what idea you're going to encounter what you practice you're going to pick up when you, you sort of get to gaze out upon the world through someone else's eyes so that's the small cost and the and the very large potential upside. And then if you have this practice, just read a just read a, read a fucking book, like read a book um, <laughs> rather than watch TV or something like that. Just, just read the fucking book. And then it will pay off at some point. You don't, you don't know how you don't know. You don't know what it's going to be until you, until you get there and it will, it'll surprise you every time. So the practice is, is really what matters. You don't, you, it's not sort of like, you have to see the future and predict it's going to be exactly this, and this is going to lead me onto This is going to lead me to this path, and that's going to result in this opportunity. Um, if you become the kind of person who does such and such activity, and I would include sort of reading in that bracket, um, it's going to pay off. It's it's just going to pay off, and you can feel good about that.
0: So much to go through there, man. It sounds like I'm uh, talking to a kindred spirit here. Certainly one of the things that I've done this year, which has made a big difference, a little mantra I've had in my head has been, um, this is why you're here. So when things get hard or you feel discomfort, the reminder is that that's what you're here for. You're here for the slightly uncomfortable learning experience. It's because you're learning something difficult and worthwhile. You're there for the burn in the gym. You're there for the slight level of hunger or tiredness or whatever it is at the end of the day because you are on a calorie restricted diet or because you've trained hard that day or whatever it might be this is why you're here lean into your discomfort as if you invited it through the door and then talking about systematizing some things that you want to do um, a good hack for that sleep with your phone outside of your bedroom and don't watch netflix after a particular time at night the only choice that you have to do is to read a book or go to bed early either way you win So those are two ways that I've instantiated uh, things that I want as long-term lifestyle changes into a daily practice. One thing that I can see as a potential problem here is optionality being polarized with optimizing. Like if you're always exploring new options, you can't exploit and double down into certain things. How do you deal
1: with that? Right, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, so that's the that's the fundamental trade-off is exploring and exploiting. So, um, well, f- to begin with, I think it's it's never a bad idea to maintain some level of uh, optionality. So, in other words, to, to, to devote some small portion of your time to be constantly exploring um, and opening up possibility, right until you're on desk door, kind of thing. Um, but then, yeah, after a certain point, you do have to. Switch from uh, from trying to open up new possibilities to just actually execute on something and, and sort of grab onto it with both hands. So, my model for that is the optimal strategy for switching from exploratory map mode to uh, exploit mode is a function of uh, the volatility of the domain in question and of your time frame in that domain. So it actually varies depending on what it is that we are talking about. So um, let's say that you uh, you kind of, you're in your teens or early twenties and you're, and you're you're trying to get a handle on fitness and uh, nutrition and workouts and stuff. It's a good idea to uh, try a bunch of things and see what sticks and see what you like and dislike. Just again, from the point of view of not trying to do battle with yourself and just make life easy on yourself. Um, So, that that would be a point where you want to do a lot of exploration, but obviously you don't want to be that guy who's constantly doing the hot new thing and never actually makes progress with anything. Um, it's uh, the disease of the fuck arounditis. So you have to <laughs> commit to something. Um, yeah, and then in that particular domain, uh, the volatility is not increasing. So that implies that as soon as you've found something that you. Into and that you have that, that that you feel good about, you actually sh- basically lock that in and just uh, uh, get after it indefinitely. And you can keep trying little things here and there, but you should you should do just enough exploration to find out about your own personal preferences and what works for you, and then just get after it. So the reason that that is that that, that you should uh, approach it that way is because the human body and the the sort of um, what would you call it? Like the, the interventions for physical fitness are not changing like the barbell or well calisthenics is thousands of years old. And then the barbell I think is at least a couple hundred years old and dumbbells, are dumbbells go right back to the ancient Greeks. So, um, a, a, the body itself, like it changes in on an, on an evolutionary time scale, but it doesn't change over the course of, uh, your own life, except in, um, in the sense of aging. So, uh, because the domain is relatively stable, you don't benefit from constantly exploring and seeing if new opportunities are cropping up. Like it's not like the laws of physics will change one day and suddenly, um, you know, CrossFit will be out and, uh, you know, horseback people chase will be in or something like it's, there's, there's, there's no point in, um, positioning yourself for uncertainty because there, there is no real source of uncertainty there. Um, and then, uh, to give a counterpoint of an opposite sort of scenario, if we talk about career planning, um, the argument that I make is that you have to be open to exploration uh, much more so than in a domain like physical health because the world is changing. There is a lot of volatility and you can't necessarily uh, lock yourself into something and then put your feet up and just exploit because – uh, you know let's say you have this model where you're a specialist you're very good at one thing and you have this is the old model of the the job for life 40 years and a golden handshake um you lock yourself into that you don't broaden your skills and then the you know the robot apocalypse comes along and, and takes your job or um <laughs> yeah you know one of these sort of uh i mean it doesn't even have to be one of these outlandish ai scenarios just the more mundane reality of industries uh, collapsing. Um, so you've you've sort of concentrated all of your career capital in this one domain and it serves you very well over the short term and what you can't see in the background is this is this large accumulation of sort of silent risk. So you might be all right, you might make it to retirement and and nothing bad happens, but if your job suddenly gets outsourced to um you know to Bangladesh or or, or India or whatever it might be, you're screwed, right? You haven't you haven't sort of diversified yourself, um, you don't have options. So um, that's the downside resilience case for um, always being exploratory in uh, in a domain which is changing quickly. But the more attractive side of that is the uh, is looking at the upside. Um, you know, like thinking about emerging technologies and emerging fields. Things are changing. Things change now within the course of our lifetimes. I mean, within the course of like. A single year or a single certainly a single decade and if you have broad set of skills and you are interested you take an active interest in the world you're sort of a curious person you can position yourself to benefit from these things i mean like uh, i think we were talking about bitcoin just before we hit record like imagine being one of those guys who was uh buying bitcoin for 30 cents each or whatever because you're a geek and you Interested in this new weird money thing that no one else has ever heard of, um, just because you you you're sort of um, taking a broad interest in life and not just being like, oh, I'm the you know, I'm the uh, I'm the chief widget maker at the widget factory, and I'm good at what I do, and I'll never broaden my horizons any further than that. Um, yeah, does that make sense?
0: Absolutely, man. Yeah, totally, totally does the um, <clears throat> that insight of optionality being inverse to the level of volatility within the system makes a whole ton of sense. Mm. And I guess this year, COVID, uproar, upheaval, it's just the year of optionality. But if the future is uncertain, how do we become more confident about our decisions? Shouldn't we just constantly be worried about the future, especially given that technological change and society is moving so fast now?
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to what, what I find to be psychologically comforting about optionality. So at, at this point, it might help to um, sort of mention my model for what is what are the raw ingredients of optionality. So I break it down to financial capital, i.e. how much savings you have um, and how little debt you have, uh, health capital, how fit and healthy and energetic you are. Social capital, the strength and quantity of your relationships and, and knowledge capital, which is the depth and breadth of your skills and experiences. And um, if you have, if you focus on all four of those buckets and, you, and, you're, and you're sure not to neglect any of them, I think you can kind of uh, feel confident about the future, even though you don't know what's coming, because let's say uh, 20 years from now, I wouldn't have a clue what I'm going to be doing in a grain, like in a fine grained kind of a sense. I don't know. I don't know what sport I'll be playing. I don't know exactly who my friends will be. um, And I don't know what I'll be doing for work, but it will in any possible conceivable scenario, it will be extremely useful for me to have all four of those buckets full so that I'm in a good position to execute on whatever makes sense at that point in time in my life and my career and that future version of me. So, um, I find it extremely comforting. I mean the, probably the simplest and most obvious version of this is that anyone who's ever been in debt or who's just had a shitty job and sort of struggling to make rent, it's just a hor- horrible, position to be in. Like you feel powerless and, um, you can't relax and it sort of bleeds over into every other area of your life. And getting yourself in a position where you've cleared your consumer debt, for example, and you've got like a bit of an emergency fund in case um, the shit hits the fan. It's just such a, it's such a powerful thing to do. And um, it doesn't actually, it's, you know, like it's not changing anything in the sense that uh, maybe you still work the same job and your life looks more or less the same, but just psycho even psychologically, it's a powerful position to be in. So, Yeah. My argument is that if you build up these sort of central assets, um, these real, real core, valuable sources of optionality, uh, that alone is extremely comforting. It's never not going to be useful to have a big chunk of change sitting in the bank. So you're well positioned, maybe an investment opportunity comes along. Maybe you're the guy who finds out about the 30 cent bitcoins, right? Like maybe, uh, you have a, an idea to start a small business or you want to quit your job and take a sabbatical and launch a podcast or whatever it might be, right? Like, it's always going to be useful. And you like, uh, I don't know, you, you just feel a certain sense of security and possibility when you have all of these things topped up. Uh, so I think that, yeah, the future is kind of scary, but you can you can take some of the sting out of it. And maybe even make it into an exciting thing. And that would be the ideal where you're kind of intrigued about what will happen. I mean, just from like, yeah, it is. I mean, the world is a fairly wild place right now. And if you can if you can be the perfect stoic and sort of remove yourself from it a little bit, it is almost entertaining, isn't it? Like, it's just so <laughs> bizarre.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is. I got asked on a podcast, I was guesting on someone's show this week. And um, they asked me like, what do you want to do in 50 years? What What do you want written on your tombstone? And I've never really been that good at, at long-term planning. I think it's a function of being curious. Mm-hmm. If anyone is super, super curious, you're always aware of just how many things you're not doing rather than the things that you are. And yeah. <laughs> that to me is just like, I, man, I, I don't know. I get the sensation. I get the impression that when I start a family, I'm currently single and don't have kids but i get the impression that when i start a family that's probably going to be a sledgehammer of emotions that i'm not ready for um that's probably going to whitewash most of the other stuff that i do in my life um but i might be wrong and given the fact that i don't have that input and i do tons of different things i was like i I don't know man but that that you've given me a comfort blanket there man like i've just got options i've got optionality um yeah talking about the absolute fundamentals what is the fundamental best way for someone to start opening up the optionality they have in their life?
1: Um, I think the single most important thing that anyone could do is probably uh, to attack the financial side of things, only because, um, well, I'll, t- I'll tell you a little story. So uh, I, yeah, I used to be a business reporter um had a good job enjoyed it very much but I was starting to get a bit bored and sort of getting that three-year itch kind of thing um and I I came across this subculture called financial independence retire early or the fire movement and I started getting into their stuff and um their main thing is like you you go into kind of hardcore frugality mode and you think really carefully about what's important to you and Uh, cut out any extraneous spending repay debt aggressively Um, so I did that and I I saved like enough uh, a big enough chunk of change to um, eventually sort of quit my my job not in a permanent retirement sense but in a sort of go take a sabbatical and work on other projects sense Um, and that was like that was the, the little the lifestyle experiment that launched a a thousand ships kind of thing. Like that was the most powerful move that I've ever made, I think. Um, and that is very accessible to most people. So, um, what I was think the figure, what was the figure that you hit? I, I hit a uh, hundred thousand, uh, New Zealand dollars. I think I hit it in the, in the greenback about a, a year later. So, um, yeah, enough money for me to go and travel and, um, do my thing and uh have some space to breathe and, and think about other projects but not enough to retire on permanently but just the principles of doing that um are so powerful and like money is not quite the same thing as optionality but it's a it's a it's a one of the most powerful ingredients because if you have money again you have the right but not the obligation to spend it however you see fit so you can't buy everything with money, but you can make a pretty good uh, you can make a pretty good attempt at it um, so one underrated way of well maybe it's not underrated, but one powerful way of uh of having more optionality is to take that use something like that frugal approach i think especially when you're a young man or young woman um and you can uh you don't necessarily have to have an ex- an extravagant lifestyle and try to keep up with your peers. Uh, you can just sort of again, it's a short-term pain, long-term gain thing. You can just uh, um, sort of set yourself up to be in a stronger position a little bit later down the track. So I would highly encourage anyone who's listening to this who is thinking about like they you don't feel if you don't feel powerful, if you don't feel like you're in a position where you could um, where you could take a punt, where you could take a risk and start your own project, or where you could walk away from your job because you don't like your book, boss you know like your co-workers or something um yeah i think if you want to give yourself some power what you want to do is start being more intentional about your spending i've got a lot of, sort of tips in, in the book and um uh, start trying to build up the net worth start trying to get rid of debt and then that puts you in a really strong position you can you can walk away from a shitty situation uh you can you can retrain or upskill you can take a sabbatical to launch your passion project. You can cut back to part-time hours, you know, maybe to spend more time with your family or, or, or put more effort into your health or whatever it might be. Um, and I feel like that's an unusually accessible intervention that a lot of people could use. And um, with the exception of people who are really doing it tough and they're already sort of living on uh, living uh, uh, on the smell of an oily rag, um, the great majority of young people, Uh, you you know, tradespeople and and professionals could use those strategies to get themselves in a good position. Um, So yeah, I think that's probably the simplest step to, to get started.
0: I remember I had a conversation while I was on a photo shoot, maybe about six or seven years ago with this older lady. She's probably about the age that I am now. So I'm 32. She's maybe like 32, something like that. She was telling me about her and her husband and I'd just bought my second house uh, my first rental. So I, I had my own and then I, I bought a second one for buy to let. And she's telling me, oh, we've just got our eighth house and I'm talking about all the different things. And I was like, oh, so what's the plan? And she says, well, me and my husband have done all of this. We started a business together. We got married early at sort of 22. We started a business together and been working on this business and building up this property portfolio along, alongside it. Now we've got the manager that's been with us for ages. She's going to run the business and we front loaded our wealth and it was that term that stuck with me. So mm. we front-loaded our wealth acquisition to the point now where we're going to go travel the world for the next four years. And then we're going to settle yeah. down and we're going to start a family. And I was
1: yeah, like,
0: holy fucking shit, that's it. If compounding is the eighth wonder of the world, mm. which I think we all agree it is, then front-loading that wealth as quickly as possible. And it's something that I I ended up doing purely by fortune rather than by design, but it's certainly put me in a a strong position now. I have my house plus three other rentals, and I have a a nice sort of steady pot of cash, and it also means that even my own home, because I let two rooms out to my buddies, even that's paid for. You know, the whole world could go to hell in a handbasket, and I'd still, it has done done this year. Uh, And financially, I know that I'm still sorted, and the converse of that is kind of the live young, wild and free advice that's often given to people. And I get that. Like, Don't get me wrong. Being young is a time for you to adventure and to do new things and to be a little bit reckless as well. But at the top of this episode, we talked about the number one rule of the game is to never be out of playing. And locking yourself in, get, going mm. bankrupt, getting into a business at 23 years old with zero business experience and some shady business partner and having a bankruptcy on your record or having a terrible yeah. credit rating because you've run up a ton of different cars on repayment finance or a bunch of credit cards because you wanted a new 50 inch TV or whatever, you know, upside 50 inch TV, downside shit credit rating for the next decade. Like <laughs> That's a pretty big <laughs> asymmetric risk that you've got going on there. So, yeah. Yeah, certainly. And, and that the, the beautiful thing about front-loading wealth is that you front-load. If you haven't done it up until now, now is the time to start. You can be 75 listening to this, and you're better off front-loading wealth than you are back-loading it now. I, I had um, yeah. Morgan Housel on, guy that wrote The Psychology of Money, and he said that 90% of Warren Buffett's net worth was generated after his 65th birthday.
1: Is it right? <laughs> Holy shit.
0: That's how powerful compounding is. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Man, I'm 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 all I'm all about that front load front load that wealth. Why didn't you decide, right, I've got my 100,000 here, uh I'm now going to continue to work and just build up like some insane amount of cash and then go for not mm. not whatever it is the I can't remember what the first two letters are retire early financial independence retire yeah. early uh why not like financial independence retire at an all right age but wealthy as fuck
1: yeah well um so i could have done that that was my initial plan but the problem was that a I was a journalist and journalists are not really making banks so it would have been a bit of a slog and i wouldn't have retired super wealthy i would have been um you know, I would have had a pretty Spartan existence if I wanted to do the early retirement thing, which is fine. You know, I'm, I'm actually okay with that. Um, but what I wasn't okay with was sort of having this super distant, future focused um, idea of distant happiness. So it took me right out of the moment because this idea of retire, financial independence, retire early is like the whole point of the game is to check out the earliest opportunity. So it's very, It's a very kind of negative framing. Um, Work is bad and you must escape, right? So um, I wasn't prepared to keep doing my job, which I was no longer wildly interested in for 10 or 15 more years um, to get to the point where I could retire properly because I had all these other things that I wanted to experiment with. And also I I hadn't done my overseas experience, which is a sort of grand tradition in New Zealand. You have to go out and, have your gap here, or, or whatever and do the banana pancake trail and that sort of thing. Um, so I didn't want to squander my youth and my mobility and, um, and sort of lock myself into this future thing. So I just decided like, I'm going to, I'm going to pull the plug right now. Um, this is enough to make some big changes to my life and, uh, you know, maybe look for some higher leverage opportunities. So, um, uh, you know, like, Being a salary earner is fine. It's great in some way, in many ways. It's sort of comfortable and you have that stability. Um, But I think I like that Naval line that, you know, the way to get wealthy is to own something, is to own a piece of something like you with your houses or, you know, you with your podcast or, um, you know, you own a stake in a business, you start your own business. You And the fundamental difference there is you capture the upside, right? Not your boss, not the shareholders of, the the conglomerate that you work for, um, possibly there's uh, there's a there's a stronger element of downside risk and it's a bit more of a speculative play, but you get to capture all the gravy. So that's that's like, I mean, thank God that I did quit my job and go off and wander and sort of um, try some of these higher leverage, uh, more speculative plays because that's actually how, um, I, you know, the other path would have been okay. I could have gone back to work and had a pretty good existence but like now i'm financially independent just having um without having to work full time or do anything that i don't want to do what are the um, um what are the roots
0: of leverage that you you have favorited over the last few years
1: so investing is my main thing and that is how i've also sort of generated um uh most of my wealth um so what I'm looking for is again, asymmetries. Um, I don't know if you want to get into investing at all. Um, but, um, yeah, like looking for neglected opportunities and things that kind of intersect with my own skill set or experience or, um, uh, like things that are available to me that aren't necessarily available to everyone else. So but I'm not talking about S and P 500, which every man and his dog can go on and, and trade. Um, things where you have some insider knowledge or you have a personal connection. Um, and therefore there's an opportunity, there might be an asymmetry to exploit. Um, and then the other things would include somewhat entrepreneurial ventures like, uh, not yeah, I don't know if I'd call them entrepreneurial, but, uh, writing a blog, uh, writing this book that I've just finished, where you are having a punt, you're, uh, you know, you, you, the downside cost is the time it takes you to write the thing and you, you know sort of pay for various expenses. And then you give yourself a shot at, again, collecting quite a large upside, whether that comes financially, um, which is infamously difficult to make money through books, but you, it's always possible that you get the the, the sleeper hit or the runaway hit. Um, and then also in terms of um, creating other opportunities, so broadening your reach and your audience and um, you never know who's going to. To read it and who's going to get in touch so uh yeah i've been yeah I, I suppose i spent my sabbatical uh collecting those kind of options like uh meeting new people and uh trying some uncertain ventures uh, that don't have a steady paycheck associated with them and then uh yeah i've just been lucky that some my stable of options have started paying off um interestingly after i'd written almost all of the book so um this is not a sort of one of those things where you create a cute story after the fact to explain uh, your success like i didn't know that this would happen but i was putting myself in the best position possible for it to happen
0: i love it man speaking in naval language you're leveraging on media and capital and the one that i feel like naval actually misses off which is kind of the the social slash network slash renown effect Um, and it's a kind of a combination of all of those. Is there an elephant in the room, talking about what you've just brought up there and then the point I made before about front-loading your wealth, is there a bit of an uncomfortable elephant in the room that there is, if you want to have a family, there is a little bit of a time bracket on this, that we need to spend Mm -hmm. a little bit of time avoiding debt and accruing stacks of cash. We also know, for most of us, we don't want to be a parent to a newborn child at 50 so there is a kind of a window in terms of long-term lifestyle design that we need to slot ourselves into. And for women, the window perhaps is made even smaller. Although, a uh, statistic from 2019 in the UK, more women had children over the age of 40 than under the age of 20. Is that, yeah?
1: Wow. Pretty
0: cool stat. Yeah. But you you, un- you understand the paradigm I'm talking about.
1: I do, yeah. So... You're absolutely right, but I think the 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 good news is that it's not necessarily a, a biphasic thing where you're in this mode now and then you switch to this mode after a certain point, or because you're having a family or whatever it might be, you can sort of move in and out of different modes. I'd probably again go back to the exploring and exploiting thing, um, or you know, more risk on or risk off modes, uh, and you can you can do that like multiple times throughout a lifetime. So um, my preferred model is for a young, a young person um, first spend some time actually building some career capital. I reckon that's always the way to go. And what I mean by that is accumulate some skills, get paid to be less dumb, basically get a, get a regular job. (laughs) Um, You know, like you, you'll also meet people through the job, hopefully. um, And make you repay your student debt if you have if you have one or at least have a have a crack at it and
0: also learn how the that. workplace works as well learn how to have a disagreement with your boss learn what it is to get up at 7 a.m every day etc etc
1: yeah yeah and maybe get a taste for what you don't want in life too i suppose um yeah like it's that thing i don't know if yeah if anyone who's ever done like manual labor or uh maybe worked in a um hospitality or in a restaurant i think Um, if you're in a shit job, um, not that I'm saying all those jobs are shit. I just mean, if it happens to be a shit, a shitty version of that job, um, that's pretty good motivation, right? (laughs) Like, um, you don't want to, you don't want to, uh, you don't want to think of yourself like 40 years from now doing the same thing. So I think there's sort of a character building element to it as well, um, where everyone should really have to do, have to do that. But anyway, so you you go through a phase where you're trying to be useful and, you know, you're young and dumb. You don't know anything like just pick up, pick up skills, become useful. Then maybe you do your um, exploration where you start, maybe you go out into the world and you take risks because you don't have a mortgage necessarily. You don't have kids at that point. This is, it's not a surprise that so many entrepreneurs are um, in their even in their late teens or early twenties, like it makes perfect sense then if your ambitions don't work out and you want to have a family or whatever, you can take risk off. You can, um, you know, sell your business if you got it started or just sort of sort of work a a regular salary job and, uh, and, and step things back. But that's not the end of the road. So interesting, uh, statistics. I think the most successful entrepreneurs tend to be in their fifties or, um, certainly older, like, the Zuckerbergs of the world are actually um, – there's a lot of them, but that doesn't actually necessarily uh, relate to their success, and it might even be the opposite. Oh, so dude, they're,
0: they're, in, w- they're incredibly rare. There's a, a really famous diagram floating around a couple of years ago where it was talking about the founders of some of the biggest companies in the world and when they founded the companies. And it was like Bill Gates in his 50s and Steve Jobs in his, and blah blah, 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 blah. The only reason I can see – that we have adolescents worth billions and billions of dollars is a function of the fact that Silicon Valley's valuations of companies has become completely detached from their actual worth. And it's more a quirk mm-hmm. of the particular way that our economy is set up at the moment, i.e. Silicon Valley doesn't know what the fuck it's doing and is just chucking, yeah. chucking money at anything that moves in a desperate attempt that it's going to go to the moon. So yeah, I I, I I totally agree, man. You can win at almost every stage of life now. And you, there's yeah. these kids, these like seven. I remember this seven or eight year old who had a YouTube channel reviewing toys, and he's like one of the biggest YouTubers in the world a couple of years ago. <laughs> uh, and you can flip that round to the the Warren Buffett story where you make sixty five. Oh, you make ninety percent of your net worth after your sixty fifth birthday. You know, like there yeah. there is a full lifetime of success. Opportunities and you really, as long as you're never out of the game, you only need to hit that moonshot once. Ideally, earlier on, because yeah. then you get more time to enjoy it, but you only need to get it right yeah. once.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, my own personal plan was if my little ventures didn't pay off, um, I was because I do quite want to have a family at some point. I thought that I would uh, return to the workforce and you know, have a reasonable job and a good career and maybe do the kids and house and family thing. Um, and then, yeah, at some distant point down the track, uh, save up uh, another stack of cash or get in, a, get in a good financial position and then go do something wild again, you know, like go uh, try and start a company or, uh, you know, sell everything and go traveling or whatever it might be. I think, dude, I, th- um,
0: I think that kind of, whatever you'd call it, that second second youth when the kids leave home, I think we're going to see that more as we've got uh, more frictionless travel, people who've grown up with a traveling mindset and a, an entrepreneurial mindset. Rather than the kids leaving home and your parents retiring to the country, it's like the kids leave home and your parents retire to five different countries a year, airbnb being their, their, way, their way around the world, doing all of the stuff yeah. they just didn't quite have time to complete when they were 25. Um, And I think yeah. that's going to be super cool. I certainly know, given my wanderlust, and it sounds like you've got the same, that would absolutely mm. be something that I would be looking to do. Like, not just going away on yeah. wanky DFDS seaways tours and cruises, which like everyone's mum and dad seem to be obsessed with at the moment. <laughs> like, you know, g- going and heading off to all the countries that you didn't get a chance to or going on an expedition or going dog sledding, you know, all that sort of stuff. I think that yeah. hopefully we'll we'll see that, and it'd be a really it'd be a really fucking cool world if that was the case. And it's also going to plug a ton of wealth and income into more varied countries. You're going to take wealth that's being created in the developed world and pl- plug it into the developing world in a really nice way.
1: Mm, yeah, that's right. It's it's even doable with kids in tow. I mean, I don't know how much of a sort of logistical mission that is but when I've been wandering around I've met a bunch of families who are actually doing the nomadic digital nomad lifestyle um with their kids and it's it's pretty cool for the kids because they get to you know like I'm thinking of this family who they've got two young boys and the boys are in a Thai school learning Thai um at this formative age and that's normal for them that's their life um so yeah I think that can be that's even a possibility as well as to make it sort of a so many uh, options, so thing. many <laughs> options, Richard.
0: Right, so you've got um you've got these ten principles for optionality, and we've kind of gone through a few of them, but there's some in here that I think are really cool. So can we do a sort of a quick fire, and have you just explain some of these to us? Yeah, of
1: course.
0: Perfect. So number two, uh, sorry, number three beware of geeks bearing formulas.
1: Yeah. So um, there's a, okay. So in the world of finance, uh, people love to come up with very fancy models that they think have some predictive power about what's going to happen to the stock market or oil or Bitcoin or whatever it might be. Um, And they use these models to decide how much risk they're willing to take in, in terms of asset allocation and timing and all these kind of decisions that they have to make. Um, now, when people do that on their own behalf, that's okay. You know, you can be a trader, you can, you can go on Wall Street bets. You can, you can have a play. And if you screw up then because, you know, because you, your Fibonacci retracements uh, were wrong or whatever, <laughs> um, like th- that's on you and, and, um, and you, you know maybe it's a learning experience or something right but the, the the danger is that everyone has exposure to the financial system as a whole and people who are making these kind of decisions on your behalf because uh, you know they're investing your retirement fund for you or uh, pension fund or um, whatever it might be so um there's this tendency throughout human history but especially in the financial realm to sort of put, have have too much confidence in these uh in these predictive models, which only ever offer a very simplified version of, uh, of like a complex chaotic system. And then when the models are wrong, uh, things work out very, very badly. So during the, the GFC, for example, actually during the credit crunch, um, yeah, that, uh, there's this, this story I recount in the book where the Goldman Sachs guy, whose fund has just lost 30% or something is saying like, Oh, this was a, a Twenty was a 25 standard deviation move um, outside of our models and it happened multiple days in a row. Like um, it's a, it's a total freak accident. Um, And and the funny thing is that like these freak accidents happen all the time. And it's not that it's not that the universe is just um, sort of taking the piss. It's that the models are broken. The models are are wrong. Um, So the, the, the more general uh, lesson to sort of extrapolate out from that, is just um, if you're making any kind of decision that's based on uh, an equation or a model, also very popular in the financial independence retire early movement, um, just don't put all your, don't put all your faith in it. Just uh, remain open to the possibility that you might be wrong or that your model might be wrong and sort of plan uh, accordingly. Um, Because historically, if you sort of trust in the numbers too much, like, you know, so-and-so is a sure thing. Uh, you will be uh, you will be proven wrong uh, in a in a sort of a devastating fashion. Around so, yeah, about once a, every decade, on as network. well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it will it will happen in your lifetime. Yeah, for sure.
0: Number five: generating better options is much more important than trying to make perfect decisions.
1: So, if you think about when you go you're going through daily life and you're just presented with this massively expensive array of options and i mean expensive in terms of attention and uh, and uh, mental bandwidth Um, and the vast majority of them just don't matter so we're sort of blind to them because we are so used to it but like what clothes you wear what exactly what brand of cereal you're, you're eating and all the product selections that you make, the the route that you drive, the people you associate with, the emails you check, the websites you look at, blah, 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 blah. Like if you add add all of that up, um, we're talking about like millions of branching paths in front of you at any given point in time. You could order anything you want. Um, You could look at any website on the entire internet or watch any TV show or or film. So um, a lot of people try to optimize Uh, those branching uh trees of possibility so sort through the umpteen different um brands of, of detergent and figure out the exact best one for me or um you know like find out the exact tv show that i should watch or uh you know like basically putting a ton of thought into these decisions that don't have any sort of asymmetric payoff because you know you you choose the uh you choose this brand of laundry detergent over that one like it's not going to be sort of wildly exciting either way I and mean, your whites are whiter or whatever um so the point that i'm making there is that you don't need to worry about the vast majority of those of choices that are presented to you in, in daily life you're much better off sort of pruning quite a lot of those pathways and trying to put your channel your efforts into uh, looking for the actual asymmetric opportunities that are going to be powerful to you. So, uh, instead of, um, so uh, instead of walking down the breakfast cereal aisle and trying to decide which type of cereal you should eat, the a, high, a, a higher leverage option to be thinking about is like, um, do I want to be eating cereal or, you know, like, do I want to have breakfast at all? What is the concept of breakfast? Like, is this just a, a myth sold to us by Mr. Kellogg or whatever? Right. So like, um, um, the point being not that you should skip breakfast, but just that like, uh, maybe that's a, maybe that's a more, um, interesting, uh, potentially rewarding option to think about than like the very specific, uh, difference between one brand and the other and sort of scrutinizing ingredient panels and that sort of thing. So I and suppose, my sort of, go ahead. Sorry. No, go on going one level of abstraction uh, okay, back. I was just say that um my, with my with my tinfoil hat on um my conspiracy theory is that like i don't know if this is an, an, an exact deliberate ploy or not but um when you have all these options sort of dazzling you you're you're essentially trapped and this is the this is what the this is what the consumer capitalist system wants from you is to keep you obsessing over this narrow range of standardized options so that you don't make the big uh, high leverage decisions to uh, you know stop consuming in certain ways or um uh, change up your your life in a more meaningful way because you're just constantly trying to make these low level boring um low payoff decisions. Sorry uh, go on you're going to say something. Yeah.
0: So the illusion of choice that we're given as a consumer still traps us in the matrix of making decisions as a consumer. It doesn't actually allow us out of the maze. It just gives us different flavors of cheese within it.
1: Yeah, I love that. That's a great way of putting
0: it. Um, One of the things I thought, first off, a good heuristic, I suppose, would be to take one step of abstraction back from the question that you're asking and just think about it from first principles about, like, do I need to do this? Do I need to do X? Uh, well, I get hmm. my car cleaned every Saturday. Okay, well, like, could could you get away with cl- getting it cleaned every other Saturday? Do you actually need to get it cleaned yeah. at all? Like, what's going to happen? Could you get it cleaned every six months? Is there a different way that you can get hmm. it cleaned? Can you go for a machine as a hand washer, this, that, and the other? Another thing that it made me think about is a Naval quote, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. And that very much, I think, talks about the – it speaks to a number of different things – but one of them is the obsessing that we happen to have over easy decisions because it allows us to push away the difficult ones. So I'll never forget, uh, this is when I was like maybe 23, 24. So you know, I was on my way to buying my first house and I was the director of a pretty successful events company and I had a fair bit of money behind me. And I remember I was I must have spent five minutes debating between two different types of yogurt based on the deal that was on it was like four for three pounds or like like seven for eight pounds but there were different yogurts and there was some different flavors and this one's this one's got a little bit more protein and there's a little bit more trans fats in the other one and i remember i had to take that step back go one level of abstraction away and go chris what what on earth are you doing like this is this is absolutely insane in the time that you were here you could have gone home and done something with far more leverage that would have genuinely added value to your life but it's because i hadn't made the decision around which mortgage broker i wanted to use or because i hadn't you know the the hard the hard thing i hadn't sent the application off to whatever lawyer company that's what i was hiding from and yeah I, i really that play stupid games win stupid prizes also ties into, it's a really easy way to identify the negatively asymmetric games that we're talking about. So a stupid game is, is unprotected sex. A stupid game is texting whilst driving. A stupid game is putting your entire net mm. worth into some expert algorithm trading advisor that some kid on Instagrams decided to tell you that you should use. And another one of those, <laughs> the, most, the most obvious one, which really struck home at me that when I realized it, was what is the prize you win for always responding to messages within 24 hours? Because we all do that. We all check our inboxes, our social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever it might be, TikTok. Uh, we all, I don't even. I don't know if TikTok has an inbox. We all check those. But what's the prize that you get for being the fastest replier in the lands? Like genuinely, <laughs> these people, especially as you start to accrue a little bit of social capital and you get more incoming than you have outgoing – and most of the incoming is people wanting something from you, whether it be an answer to a question or just the sense of belonging to do whatever. Like, that's cool. And satiating that desire is, is, is fine. And it's a nice way to connect. But what's the prize that you win for being the fastest person on the trigger for that? It's absolutely nothing. It's noise, not signal and
1: that the prize that you win is that people expect that from you as well in the future and then it sort of becomes a a trap of your own making it's a curse so yeah 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 i mean this is that's my that's my excuse for why i only reply to emails once a week or something thanks thanks thanks
0: for giving me that excuse that's fine um spectacular success is a matter of putting irons in the fire
1: yeah so this comes back to the idea of uh, looking for these asymmetric opportunities and following your systems day in day out. Um, basically my frame on luck is that uh, um, quite a lot of success in life does boil down to luck of one variety or another. Um, you know, perhaps the, the sort of the genetic pl- blessings that you've been bestowed with or not been bestowed with all your parents of tr- childhood traumas or whatever it might be. Um, but you can't be fatalistic about it and sort of blame your entire station in life on, uh, you know, deterministic events. You you actually do have to take responsibility. So how do you balance that? Um, it's not, it's, it's, it's clearly not a matter of just, uh, you know, vibing with the universe and putting out your, your intentions, the, the secret style, but it's also, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's also not to say that there's nothing you can do. So, my frame for optionality is, well, you can make your own luck. So look for those asymmetric opportunities and just snap them up. Just build a portfolio over years. And um, you don't know, you can never be sure if they will pay off if you take one of these speculative plays. Um, and, and probably they won't. Uh, you know, the, the, ch- the chances are against you in any given one of them. But the idea is you're building a portfolio one of them is going to pay off at some point in time, um, at which point, uh, you're going to be okay. So you just keep stacking up opportunities wherever you see them and maximizing your chances of getting lucky. So you can't, there's no guarantees. I can never say you're definitely going to, um, you know, all your dreams are going to come true, uh, going to come true. And, you know, life's going to be sunshine and lollipops, but like you can definitely put yourself in the position of, uh, of getting a transformative upside and it's that it, it's that stoic principle again of focus on the things that are within your control universe could could either make you or break you at any point along the way but you can you can give yourself the best possible chances of uh, of actually getting a good outcome
0: hoarding options indefinitely is for cowards
1: right so if you are on your deathbed and you're very wealthy, then, then, um, one view of the world is that you've done very well for yourself and are admirable. And another view of the world is that you've fucked up because you know, it's that, that Jesus thing that, uh, you know, a, uh, a camel will pass through the eye of a needle more easily than a, a rich man will make it into the, into the kingdom of God. So, um, uh, into, into heaven, sorry. So, uh, Optionality has diminishing returns because it's sort of raw potential and you don't want to just be sitting on raw potential indefinitely. Uh, It's very useful to always maintain uh, some level of optionality, but the point is to take risks. Like the point is to do something and uh, sort of leave the world in a a better place than you found it. So uh, looking at money, for example, uh, if you have a bunch of money and you don't deploy it anywhere, you know, you just sort of have it uh, mouldering away under your mattress or, or whatever it might be. You could have invested that money. You could, have, you could have deployed the capital to the place where it can actually be do the most good. Or you could have uh, spent it and put it back into the economy, or you could have given it to someone who will get a much higher return on investment from that money. So if you're just hoarding options uh, until the end of time, um, my argument is that uh, once you have made good, once you've got yourself in a comfortable position, you're taking care of you and yours, um, I think it is sort of a, not a, re- I don't, I don't want necessarily want to frame it as a requirement, but like, it's a very attractive opportunity to use your expanded range of choices to help open up other people's uh, options and, and capabilities, just because you've already tapped out. You've hit the point of diminishing returns. You don't need more opportunities. You don't need more money. You don't need more friends, right? Th- these things are, you can't have an infinite number. Um, it's not going to help you, but it'll be transformative to other people so this is sort of my my sort of preaching bit but like yeah i would like to see people um open up their options uh yeah, in a selfish way because why not but also then use their position to uh, to help out other people
0: i suppose this isn't just limited to financial either so you can imagine someone perhaps in a relatively okay middle class position Who's maybe had a ton of different ideas you know for invention maybe they're maybe they're a low-level engineer or a coder or something like that but it was safe for them to stay within the particular firm that they were at and they made it to 55 and got a big fat pension because they've been with them for 30 years but had they've decided to deploy on some of those options they could have had so much more flourishing they would have Felt better. The world would have actually been raised up. The whole consciousness of the world would have been improved because of whatever the cool thing is that they're going to do. So that would be hoarding options in one way. And then I suppose as Mm. well, people can hoard their networks. It's built into my blood because my business is that of a club promoter. That I adore linking people in. Ah, this guy, this guy. You need to get him on your podcast. And this author, need you should speak to this person. And they're probably sick of it. They're probably sick of me constantly sending emails like poor greg McEwan that wrote essentialism like i've become his booking agent like constantly mate mate you need to go on ben bergeron's <laughs> podcast and this guy loves you and this guy loves you uh, it's just as well he's got an assistant so he's not being hassled with it but my point is that a lot of the time you can imagine someone would not only hoard perhaps money they would hoard intellectual wealth and some of that would be conscious i.e um a fear of uh committing to it because as soon as you put a target or a goal out into the world, you give yourself the chance of not achieving it, which is failure, which is scary. But another side mm-hmm. of it would be someone consciously doing it. I don't want to share my insights about the financial market, my networks about this, my spare room in the house, which is currently unoccupied, at a lower rental rate that allows a, a family to move in or, you know, all of these different things. There's a ton of different ways that people can be cowardly by not acting on options. And, Mm. Certainly this year, for me, I've thought that trying to err on the side of action first. uh, In my experience, we all are quite hesitant creatures, and that makes sense, because we're both predator and prey evolutionarily, which is an odd situation to be in. We can be eaten by stuff, but we also eat stuff. So we're tentative by nature, but erring on the side of action David Allen's two-minute rule is like a, a really good one for just day-to-day stuff. But even bigger than that, like, okay, what, what would it take for me to get this the minimum viable product of me starting this thing going or me beginning that friendship with that person or me saying something to that girl over the far side of the room or pick whatever it is that you want. Having that conversation with my boss that I think treats me a little bit badly. All of these different yeah. things, until you put them out into the world, until you actually decide to commit – they're just notions they're just fucking ephemeral clouds these weird thoughts that no other human except for you are going to be aware of and erring on that action first yeah. mindset is something that I' definitely want to cultivate more in myself and and I think a lot of other people yeah. would benefit from too
1: yeah I agree I think especially if uh if the costs of doing so are minimal and it's basically like a motivational issue or um, sort of yeah just pulling finger. Like, just make a little experiment, make a small bet, and then iterate, right? Like, if it, you know, you, you'll learn something from it. But yeah, I like that framing. I think you should definitely be um, uh, trying to uh, get more data about the world as quickly as you can, which will usually look like doing something. Just make sure it's a reversible thing or that it doesn't um, expose you to any kind of <laughs> large obligation. Yes. Um, and then take that and then take the action. Yeah. Uh,
0: what is a concept from Taleb? that more people need to know about one that perhaps isn't as common as the black swans and anti-fragility and stuff like that?
1: Yeah. Um, I love his, uh, his idea of a barbell strategy. Well, it's not actually Taleb's idea, but he does write about it, which is basically uh, uh, taking a sort of uh, bimodal approach to life where you're extremely extreme and aggressive in one particular Uh, domain and then you're very conservative like hyper conservative uh, at the same time so you think about like a yeah like a barbell there's one big lump and then there's another big lump and then there's nothing and you know there's just a thin line in the middle Um, so I've I've found that really useful um, in all sorts of areas actually so uh, just to give you uh, an example um, I have this like barbell strategy for buying stuff so what that means is I want to have the best in class stuff uh things that really bring me joy and that i love and that they might be quite expensive um and that are you know very good quality or i want to have like whatever the cheapest version of that is like the very the thing that i pick up at the thrift shop without giving any particular thought to or the thing maybe i buy some fast fashion item or something because i don't particularly care about it and then i want to have nothing in the middle I don't want to have like middle of the road stuff where I have to think about it and it's not that great, or I pay quite a lot of coin for it and um, it's not going to last me very long. Um, So yeah, I kind of, I found that quite, uh, quite liberating uh, thinking about also forces you to think about like what, again, what is, what is worth having, what is worth concentrating on. What are some of the examples of
0: products that you've applied that thought process to?
1: Yeah, so I have um, uh, there's a there's a community called Buy It For Life on Reddit, which I think is pretty cool. And well, uh, maybe I'll give you some context. I've been traveling for about uh, four years since I quit my job, and I've been living out of a suitcase. So I haven't owned anything, and I got rid of I got rid of everything before I left. Um, so I had my sort of core kit of clothing that I could wear over and over again. It's made out of merino wool. Um, and it, and that's expensive, and that I put some thought into acquiring. And then I'd also just pick up sort of bits and pieces as I was traveling, um, with basically no thought put into them, like you know a T-shirt for working out or whatever. And then if 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 it gets dirty or stolen or something, I don't care. It's just you know it cost me two dollars or whatever it might be. Um, and then since coming back to New Zealand, I'm sort of thinking of moving into getting settled down a little bit and actually wanting to acquire possessions. So I'm using the principles of this buy it for life community to think about. What are the things that uh, I will have that I could potentially buy forever? So I'm, right now, right now I'm researching uh, chef's knives and uh, pots and pans.
0: <laughs> so <I'm, That's> cool. <laughs>
1: I want, yeah, I want to get it once, and I want to look after it and be intentional about it and care for it forever. So this is on my um, hyper sort of aggressive, expensive end of the barbell. Um, something that I will that will I will use every day. I'll get a lot of utility out of and pleasure out of. Um, And that's worth actually diving through that annoying consumer capitalism uh, labyrinth for. But I don't want to do that like with some middle of the middle of the road stuff and do it five years later when this one craps out on me, you know?
0: Mm, Yeah, that is cool. I had a Rory Sutherland on the show recently, a behavioral economist from Ogilvy Advertising, one of the most unique force of nature humans on the planet. And he was talking about exactly the same thing. And he spoke about how he thinks middle-of-the-road fashion is dead. So the Marks and Spencers or the Debenhams of the world, which is sort of 50 quid for a pair of jeans or, you know, sort of 35 quid for a T-shirt is just, from a psychological perspective, totally mute because you get a particular rush when you get a bargain, when you get a, a wear it once for a fiver. Piece of clothing, and you also get a nice rush and a sense of satisfaction when you buy a hundred and thirty quid pair of Replay jeans that you know are going to be around for a decade. But you don't really actually get Mm. any sense. It's just that I've I've paid a fair price for a fair item. This isn't exciting. Like, it's it's okayly made. I'm not I'm not really that excited about it. I'm going to have to care about it, but I didn't really pay that much to care about it that much. It's just so vanilla. And, yeah, man, the, the barbell strategy is one also that I'm a huge fan of from Taleb. Richard, man, uh, I really, really have enjoyed today. It feels like we could have done many more of these, and perhaps we will do in the future. Optionality, how to survive and thrive in a volatile world will be linked in the show notes below on Amazon. If this has been the sort of thing that you've enjoyed today then i highly recommend that you go and pick it up any other things that you want to plug where else should people check you out online
1: um yeah i think come and uh, say hello at my blog which is thedeepdish.org um i encourage people to reach out and say hello because you know i want to build it a- about my network and it's one of those cheap options to take out um and yeah if you want to know about the book uh, go to optionalitybook.com and you can see a little preview and some what people are saying and also get links to the various retailers
0: awesome man thank you so much for today
1: oh thanks for having me chris Uh, it's a pleasure
0: thank you very much for tuning in how good was that i absolutely love when someone's a total beast in one area of life like finance and then finds a way to apply those principles everywhere else if you haven't already pressed the subscribe button then just now navigate open your phone up in your pocket navigate to the little little podcast app that you're using and go press the press the little button it would make me very happy indeed and it ensures that you do not miss any of the new episodes that we are releasing Monday Thursday and Saturday every week and don't forget that you can get 20% off caffeine at uncommoncoffee.co.uk, the best selection of premium coffees in the UK and 20% off uncommoncoffee.co.uk in the code MW20 go and check them out peace